when I say trust, it's more interpersonal, I think. I don't know if you would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, trust feels a lot more interpersonal to me. And so I think if we're going to understand the gospel as Jesus as king, we need to understand faith or pistis, trust in a more interpersonal sense. And I think trust does that better in English because of the semantic overload of this term. Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler, and we are moving on in our discussion of the gospel in this gospel series. Before we get to the Divine Conspiracy, which is our first book we're going to go through, Daniel and I wanted to have a set of conversations about one other thing. We are going to talk here about the concept of justification. This will be three parts. Uh, This first bit, Daniel introduces a podcast that he listened to that he, uh, he also had me listen to, which is the Biblical Languages podcast, and they interviewed the author of a book called Gospel Allegiance. This flows very well from our conversations we've been having about Sky Jutani's conception of the gospel, the euangelion, the proclamation of good news, of a new ruler, and this dives into what does it mean to put your trust or your allegiance in towards that person. So this is what we kind of explore in the beginning. We introduce the podcast, introduce some of these ideas. We'll move on next week to Daniel's paper he wrote on some of this topic and cap some of that off in the third episode. So without further ado, let's get started. Uh, welcome to the Belfast Podcast. Redid it. God. <laughs> start start all over. Start all over. Uh, welcome to the Belfast Podcast. Uh, what is happening? I don't know, dude. Uh, all right. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast, dedicated to recapturing the Christian imagination. I'm your host, Luke Byler, always here with Daniel. And we are in our second recording, at least, for the gospel series that we started. Last week, we took a look at uh, Sky's sermon on what is the gospel, asked the question, are we really evangelical, looking at the historicity of the word euangelion, Daniel brought in some material from um, what encyclopedia was it? The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. They gave us some more background about it, but basically showcasing how the word was used in the time of the gospel writers, how they took the word and used it for their own purposes. Evangelion being the proclamation of good news that a new king was ruling that a new king was born new powers were in town let's say and the gospel writers seeing jesus as the new king and not herod or not 
Caesar, right? Think back to our Rob Bell sermon, that that was good news, that there was a new order to the world, a new cosmic shape. And so using that as a springboard to then frame what we mean when we say gospel, I read from N.T. Wright's book, Simply Good News, why the gospel is news and what makes it good, news being something that has happened because of which the world is different. So Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, being something that has happened, that has inaugurated a new kingdom. And because of that, the world is a different place. That is the gospel. With that being said, there are many things about the facets of what are consequent, and we use this phrase a lot, getting the gospel confused with its consequences. And today we're going to talk about some of the consequences of the gospel and how to differentiate those two, because I was stealing some of that language from the podcast episode we're reacting to today, or at least some of those ideas. And so today we're going to talk about justification, what that means for the Christian, how that takes place, some things about moral law, how we interact with that. Are we truly totally depraved? What is our nature like? All these kinds of questions in terms of the gospel, the good news, the resurrection of Jesus, what is offered to us in this event as Piper put it, um, yeah, what is that? What does it mean for us? What are the consequences then of, of this good news? So, Daniel, if you want to take it from there, because this is your, you introduced me to this podcast episode. You wrote the paper that we're going to be pulling from to interact with some of these ideas. So you can take the reins here. I just want to be, you know, ask some questions, bring up some quotes um, kind of be a sounding board for, for this. So you take the reins from here. Yeah. So um, I guess to start off with, this is um, some of the podcast material and I'll introduce the podcast in a second, but some of the material we're going to cover in the podcast may sound loosely familiar to some of the stuff we covered last week with Sky's sermon. Um, partially that's on purpose because I think it's helpful to approach the same idea of what is the gospel from multiple angles and also see that multiple people are saying similar things. But also, as we're getting into ways in which we confuse the gospel with other things, or maybe mistake the gospel for consequences of the gospel, I think it's also helpful to, um, as we use the podcast for that purpose, I think we need a fuller understanding of the presenter in that podcast's understanding of what the gospel is too. And so there might be some revisiting of concepts, but it's purpose-driven. Um, as far as my paper is concerned, I wrote this um, in my History of Christianity um, Sequence 2 course when we were talking about the Reformation. And so I'll be using a lot of um, citations from people, at least in the paper itself. We may or may not talk about we definitely won't talk about all of them. We'll definitely talk about some of them, uh, but a lot of them are from the Reformation period or a 
few centuries after, just depending on um, who they are and where they're from. As a whole, I think the theology that I present in the paper is very biblical, is, and we'll make that case, is also very historically Christian oriented, though maybe not within the traditions that most of us are familiar with. Um, in fact, I was so unfamiliar with it that I titled the paper A New Perspective on Justification of a Christian, when it's actually just a really, really old perspective that I kind of independently developed via some frustrations with the traditions that I've grown up with in, in regards to this theology. So um, with all that being said, um, I'll go ahead and introduce the podcast. It is the Biblical Languages podcast, I think is the title. Uh, this is their episode where they interview Dr. Matthew Bates um, on his book, The Gospel Allegiance. And you can kind of tell that that title um, is playing with at least potentially what the gospel is, um, which I think is useful. So Luke, do you have anything else to add before we dive into this first? Mm -hmm. Okay. So this first section, um, Dr. Bates is going to be describing how he more or less defines the gospel and might get into a few implications of that before this um, timestamp is up. Pay attention, I will say, to how this plays into um, Sky's definition that we used last week as Jesus Christ is king. Sky said that's what the gospel was, and I think we'll find a very similar definition here. Premise is that um, we've misunderstood what the gospel is and misunderstood what faith means when responding specifically to the gospel. Uh, and that the combination of, of, of correcting those two things leads to a new synthesis or a new model. So I argue in the book for what's called the gospel allegiance model and argue that that's a better way of putting together salvation holistically. So we need to, on the one hand, understand that the gospel is primarily climaxing in Jesus's kingship, that Jesus has become the king, is the saving good news. Um, and then on the other hand, um, that faith can mean, doesn't always mean, but can mean allegiance or loyalty. Uh, and that that's especially what it means when we're talking about what it means to respond to the good news. Uh, and so putting those two together, um, we're saved whenever we respond to Jesus's kingship uh, by giving allegiance to him. So kind of a quick, quick sight right there. That's just to set the stage. That's to understand how this author, as we continue hearing him speak, how he frames the gospel. You can tell it might be slightly different than how Sky framed it last discussion, but it's pretty close and a lot closer, I would say, than how all of those other examples of the gospel that we talked about in related to Sky's sermon as well. It's a lot closer than, than their definition of the gospel. And so we can see how this scholarly, um, there, there's a group of scholars and a group of preachers and pastors who are realizing that the way we've been framing the gospel for quite some time has potentially been shifted in a way that it never really should have should have been. Back to Sky's reactions to bad teaching. Yep. Again, making consequences of the gospels central to the gospel. And then that becomes the orbiting ethic let's say yeah. yeah 
Mm. So when, when Sky set up that paradigm, it becomes, I think, a really key feature for us understanding why all of these other things we struggle with within the conversations that we're having right now about gospel are so important. And, and it helps us look at them properly because it doesn't necessarily mean we throw these ideas out. It just means we have to put these ideas in their proper place and refer to them properly. Um, so now that we have the understanding of gospel, we're going to talk a bit about, um, I think this is where he talks about the word pistis in Greek which we usually translate as faith. Um, and uh, Dr. Bates is going to play with that just a little bit. To go about analyzing, you know, a Greek word and, and coming to a different understanding of it than what might normally be accepted. So on page 67, you say, due to our bias for single meaning, it is probable that Paul, Jesus, and others during the New Testament time period had only one basic image concept in mind with regard to the Pistis word family. It was not allegiance per se. What was it? It was trustworthiness, faithfulness, or trust, faith. So the, the question from this is, can you flesh out the idea of trust or trustworthiness as the basic meaning of, of Pistis? Um, so even just in English, what does trust, trustworthiness mean? Um, and why do you think it's a good summary of the PC sport? Yeah. So first of all, I would say I'm obviously relying on the work of other scholars a bit in coming to those kinds of conclusions. I haven't comprehensively, exhaustively, you know, explored the Pistis lexicon, um, but rely on people who have done more comprehensive studies. And Teresa Morgan's um, work is particularly, I think, excellent in that regard. Um, and so maybe I'll circle back to her in a second. But um, yeah, well, how would I understand trust? Um, well, obviously, whenever you trust somebody, that would involve a, a posture of reliance, of, of, of believing they're going to come through for you in some way. Or if it's an inanimate object, trusting your car um, would involve um, a, a sense of its reliability that as you need to use it, it will come through for you, right? When you need to start it, the engine will actually turn over. Um, and uh, so uh, trust is obviously, trust obviously involves like a committing of yourself to the care of another or committing something else to the care of another uh, would, would, would tend toward those kinds of ideas. Now, trustworthiness is, um, is important because it's quite different than trust, right? Um, someone who's trustworthy is someone who is uh, someone who, um, uh, in, if you were to, in, 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 to give something to them, they're going to be faithful in what they do. They're going to come through for you. Right. So one is something like where, like, you know, if you trust somebody, right, well, then you're in, uh, intending something toward them. Someone who's trustworthy is the recipient of that. Right. Uh, trustworthiness or faithfulness. So quite different understanding of the two. One of the things that's interesting is that um, we tend to strongly disambiguate around those. Right. We tend to be like, well, we have this trust idea and this trustworthiness idea, and they're quite distinct. Uh, in Greek, uh, the one word pistis seems to be able to, to um, cover both sides of that that it involves both faith and faithfulness, which are actually quite distinct ideas in terms of our own lexicon. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's an important point for us to remember. Um, and this is just, you know, how words work within a system, of, within a lexicon, right? Is that um, it, it doesn't really make sense for faith and faithfulness in English to mean the same thing because, you know, faith is already taking up a meaning space Right. And faithfulness, you know, is, is similar, but it doesn't it doesn't have to do the same work that faith 
faith is doing, right? It can do something a little bit different. Um, and so, and so what you're saying though, is that, um, in Greek, both of these concepts are, are really not, not distinguished, or at least they use the same word, um, for both the idea of trust or trustworthiness. That's right. Yeah. And I think that is an important concept, especially because our English meanings like tend to like over time shift, right? As uh, maybe, you know, 500 years ago, the word faith um, had stronger connotations, connotations of our own faithfulness. It had ideas of fidelity, like more actively present in them. Like we need to like, um, not just trust in something, but we like as part of that, like our ourselves committed, right, in some way that shows fidelity toward the object of trust. They're more like those ideas are more probably closely aligned. Whereas today, when faith begins to mean something like just belief in general, or like even like stronger gets kind of anti evidential connotations, like, like believing without any evidence or believing the miraculous or um, just like, like trusting, even though it doesn't make any sense at all. Like um, that, whenever we have those kinds of ideas that get imported into um, our like lexicon of or our, our encyclopedia of knowledge that's bound up with faith, right? Well, then we can get even more distant from um, like uh, like the the, the the ideas we're trying to translate, like pistis ideas, right? Um, so that's another uh, kind of concern uh, would be to to think about shifts in in language over time. Any initial thoughts? Well, his last statement there made me think of our conversation we had about translation. Yeah. Right. This is, this is part of the struggle of translating because as he talked about belief or faith being in a lot of ways currently thought of as absent of evidence right why would you you know what's the why would you believe in that or how could you believe in that and normally what people mean is you can't prove it in the scientific sense so why would you believe in <clears throat> yeah and with that being not exactly what is meant in pistis by faith faithfulness, trust, trustworthiness. You trust something because the thing or they are trustworthy, right? You trust that your car is going to start when you turn the key. Uh, if you don't, it is broken. It's faithful relationship with you, um, right? You trust, if you, <laughs> I had a, I had a friend uh, years back and it was a it was a real rocky relationship with him and our friend group and one of my friends said at one time you know i was talking to my mom about him and he was gonna we were like gonna go in together and buy this thing we needed that we could both use and he was he said you know if we wanted to pay each other out for it then that would be no big deal and he said, he was like, yeah. And then my mom said, yeah, don't give him money if you're not okay with never seeing it again. Why? 
he wasn't trustworthy to make a reciprocal agreement about this thing, this transaction that was going to occur. He wasn't faithful or trustworthy. Like all these words accurately describe what was happening. That's, that's what's going on here, not something absent of evidence, right? There was a lot of evidence that this was the case. Um, and so, yeah, back to the point about translation. As we think about how to express these ideas, we need to make sure that the things we're expressing match one another, right? This word faith, faithful over here. Pistis in Greek, when we in English think of faith, what is the word tree that we associate, you know, the encyclopedia entry meanings, back to our conversation about relevance and divine accommodation, divine accommodation, how do, that's what good translation is, how well do these words represent parallel ideas? What is the phrase when you, John will say this all the time when, you know, talk about phrases in Spanish. Well, there's not a really good translation for that because it's an idiom. It literally means da, 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 which, and then you have to describe the idiom and explain it, probably using another one in English that means something similar. So, so yeah, this is, this is the struggle. How do we translate these words and ideas when the words that we have now have slipped into a meaning that they didn't have even 40 years ago, 50 years ago? Yeah, and so we... And then they get overloaded. And then they, they, then they get overloaded. So meanings of words shift over time. And so um, let's take the King James translation, for instance, right? Um, earlier today, I was just reading some divine conspiracy, uh, spoiler alert, for some things that are coming up Poor on shadow. the podcast. Yeah, I guess we've already talked about it, but um, <clears throat> reading some divine conspiracy. And the entire book unless he specifies otherwise, he's quoting from the King James Version. And he's doing phenomenal work, right? Now, I, I've dogged on the King James Version a little bit, but here's the thing. If you understand the text properly and within the right framework and well enough, abs like separated from the way these words function in our own time and place sometimes, then that's just as fine a translation as any. If you're getting the meaning of the word, not from the way that word functions now, but the way that word functioned then, right? And so I just had that thought that that was, that was really interesting that he's doing this really fine theological work using what I would consider a more difficult text to work or translation to work with. Um, 
in order to get that same quality of work. And that probably comes from a lifetime of working with it. Um, but yeah, so meanings shift over time. And that's to say that translations from 40, 50, 60, 100 years ago are generally speaking, probably not going to be as good for our cultural situation right now as translations from 10, five years ago, right? And that's just because the meaning of the words have shifted over time. Uh, there is, there has also become a trans, um, a transition, not, not just a transition of that meaning, but the, the meanings begin to, the meanings of these words begin to snowball and pick up more meanings as time goes on. And so they undergo what is sometimes called semantic overload. Now, semantics just refers to the meaning of a given sound or word. And overload, obviously, referring to an overload of meaning on one particular sound or word. So let's take, I mean, today we're at least in part talking about faith, but let's start with salvation. Salvation is a word that's thrown around in Christian um, communities so much that it's almost become, I don't want to say meaningless because that feels really harsh, but it's become difficult to really know exactly what someone's saying when they use that word, because everyone uses that word all the time. And for good reason. Salvation is a important concept. It's a very important concept within the Christian framework. But because we've used the word so much, and because meanings do shift over time, and gain cultural baggage, they become semantically overloaded and it becomes far more difficult to understand potentially what the original text was saying when it used the term salvation. I like when I'm translating to translate, um, I believe it's soteria, as deliverance. Or um, I can't remember the Hebrew equivalent off the top of my head. Um, oh, duh. It's yashar. Or no, uh, yasha, which is the root where we get the name Yeshua from Jesus or Joshua. It means salvation or deliverance. When they imagined salvation or deliverance, it was usually the defense from or the defeat of an enemy very practical, real world, something's going on. That's not to say there isn't anything spiritual going on too, but that's the first image that pops in their head. Now, if I say deliverance, that's probably more akin to what we would imagine, or maybe, um, I mean, I don't even know if we have a good contemporary term that would signify that. But if I say salvation, my bet is that a ton of just theologically imported terms and images and concepts come to mind. Deliverance doesn't quite have that baggage, I don't think. And so it's a lot easier to remain authentic if using deliverance over salvation, even though they're basically interchangeable words. One is more... <clears throat> easily used in our context than the other. 
Do you have any con comments on that? With with the salvation, <clears throat> my mind goes to internal realities. Forgive. We'll get to this next week. Forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. Something we might hit on. Well, we might we might hit on it slightly today, but definitely later. A sense of purity. Whoever you wanted, moral purity, ritual purity, purity of action, the blood of Jesus, right? All these things. And I think these things are true. But when you say salvation, I think the cross, I think forgiveness of sins, I think individual repentance, cleansing, deliverance set free chains breaking the release i mean what are deliverance ministries a release from oppression or possession that might be worth revisiting at some point <clears throat> but i agree they're 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 different in my head should they be Probably not, but because of the meaning of those words in my cultural context, <clears throat> they, they conjure different things in my head. So yeah, exactly that. It is a better biblical picture, even within the words like we just talked about, faith, Faithfulness, trust, trustworthiness, belief, belief and faith, right? Those meaning different things in what is, let's say, in the author's mind or as best as we can, like, nail it down in the author's world. These words meant these things. Salvation to the Israelite meant deliverance. It meant protect from or deliverance from, uh, freedom from, I mean, what is the exodus? It is salvation, right? I've asked, this is the question asked in N.T. Wright's book, The Day the Revolution Began. This is a question worth investigating. I think I brought this up before. Why did Jesus, we'll get to this in a few weeks. Why did Jesus pick the Passover Why is that the time of year in which he chooses to die? He could have picked any of the festivals, including the Day of Atonement. But he doesn't. Why? It's a question worth asking. Back to our, again, David Atonement's wrapped up in here a little bit because I brought up last week questions about which goat. But still... At the Passover, Christ inaugurates the new covenant. This is my body. This is my blood. If you've never done a Passover Seder and you're Protestant, you should go to one. It'll reframe how you think about that night and how you think about the cross. Why? Because 
we think of it in terms of again we'll get here next week i'm just foreshadowing i'm just putting this all in your head now so that you can think about you can have some reference when we talk about it later we think about individual purification when to jesus he is walking on the dry land of the red sea this is deliverance they're but to us they're different things they probably shouldn't be but i'm i guess i'm i had more to say than i thought but there there we are no that was good that was good um so that's one semantically overloaded term right and it's not that the overload is essentially bad it just makes it more difficult to actually understand what people mean when they say when they use this term and <clears throat> that makes it more difficult to have well-informed back and forth conversations using this term or even to teach using this term same with faith you can translate pistis as faith or trust faithfulness trustworthiness um, there i think are several other line items on the back of my flashcard that's sitting right over here i wish i'd found it i could have held it up it's somewhere in a stack of like a thousand or probably more than that actually flashcards and but it it has several meanings and when i see that flashcard i go okay faith faithfulness trust trustworthiness flip it over and i've missed like two I, okay, I'll get back to that tomorrow, right? But those are the things I run down every time I look at this word. Those things in our mind carry slightly different semantic connotations. Faith feels far more religious, abstract. far less evidence-based, far more abstract. In fact, there's, as has already been referenced by Dr. Bates and you, there's this tendency to think that good faith is actually contrary to evidence. Um, and, and so it carries all of this baggage. When I say trust, it's more interpersonal, I think. I don't know if you would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, trust feels a lot more interpersonal to me. And so... I think if we're going to understand the gospel as Jesus as king, we need to understand faith or pistis, trust in a more interpersonal sense. And I think trust does that better in English because of the semantic overload of this term. So, um, he talks about trust versus trustworthiness, right? Jesus is trustworthy as demonstrated by the stories in the gospels, the passion narrative, the miracles, the death, the burial, the resurrection, all of that. I am to trust Jesus as king based on that trustworthiness. And, and we can shelve, let's just shelve this objection that will be coming my way in just a second. 
Jesus is to trust me. I know omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, all, all those things. Shelve all that. Jesus is to trust me because I am also supposed to be trustworthy in this relationship. And if that's not the case, something's wrong. Right? I've, I've shown my hand a little bit. We're going to get there, get to a bit more of an explanation of that in a little bit. But I think trust and trustworthiness, they go back reciprocally. And I think pistis, meaning both of those, is actually helpful. So, both of those simultaneously is actually helpful because it means that we are supposed to embody both just as Jesus embodies both. And that, I think, is crucial to understanding how we are supposed to react to the gospel. We are supposed to have, as Dr. Bates said, a posture of reliance on Jesus. And I'm going to sit here, I'm going to be not 100% transparent, but I'll, I'll be a little vulnerable and say, over the last few weeks, I've been dealing with some things that have made it very difficult for me in this time in my life to fully trust Jesus. It's been tough, not because anything major is going on. I mean, it is major, but it's not life altering in any way. It's just a tough season, maybe to use a, some, a phrase we throw around in church. And so I'm sitting here talking about how we need to trust and be trustworthy and all of this stuff. But that is not to say anything about the level of difficulty that that is. That is simply to say, this is what I think we need to do. This is what I think we are called to do as Christians in response to the gospel. We are supposed to have a posture of reliance on Jesus Christ as king. Anything to add? You keep going. Talking about saving faith, right? It's partly because we're talking about this in relationship to Jesus the King, like he's called Jesus Christ. And so because of our, our again, like long history of ideas and theology, right, what has happened over time is that the term Christ has got evacuated of its full meaning, right? That it's it's a title. Um, and, you know, Matthew Novenson's work on um especially this, uh, the, the idea of the title of Christ uh, is especially important here, uh, where he shows that, um, no, it didn't like just become a personal name. Like it wasn't Jesus the Christ, wasn't like, you know, Jesus Christ wasn't a personal name. It still had a valence of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the universal Jewish king who would have some ru rule over both Israel and the nations, uh, that, it, that it implicated these larger kinds of ideas. So whenever we're thinking about what does it mean to respond to the good news that Jesus has become the king uh, or the good news that Jesus is the Lord or um, any kind of royal ideas, I would argue that contextually we have strong evidence that when we're talking about what, 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 what a saving faith might involve, it, it involves a response to him in his royal capacity. So, so then the, the basic idea is that trusting, let's say, I don't know, my wife in in greek right 
would mean something different than trusting my king. That's right. Is that is that the idea? Yes, that that would be that would be the idea. That we would we would say that in general, whenever you're talking about trust or or the pistis word group with with regard to a king, that the normal the the normal sort of meaning of that word would involve heightened ideas beyond trust to a like a a consistent posture of trust, uh, and even of trustworthiness. Right, that you in service of the king, like are going to be loyal to the king. You're going to be faithful to the king. So we're as we tend to do divide out trust and trustworthiness, like they're going to entrust themselves to the king, right? Uh, but also they're going to prove to be trustworthy in the service of the king. Uh, and so I think because of Protestant concerns over works, right? And I speak as a Protestant, right? Um, that I think that there's been a tendency to kind of shave off the faithfulness part. And if you're like, no, it's just about our faith in Jesus. That's our trust in him. It's our trust in his accomplished work. Uh, and so we don't want to like do business with the other side of the pistis word group, which involves a trustworthiness to the king, a, a faithfulness to the king, a loyalty to the king, an allegiance to the king. We want to say, no, 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 that's all works. We kind of have to like get rid of that stuff. That's dangerous, right? We just trust his accomplished work. We don't have to like be trustworthy because we all know we're sinners. And I think that's um, in Pause. fact misunderstands the shape of the gospel. I was going to pause it there anyway. So. Okay. <clears throat> Thinking about N.T. Wright, gospel, news, advice. I think, is it Dr. Bates? Yeah. Is correct. Many times, us evangelicals, Protestants, dispense with the faithfulness aspect in talking about what the gospel is, what salvation is in our presentations. But, but, I don't know of a group of Christians that loves to give more advice than us about how to live your life. So do we really believe that like do you really believe that there's no faithfulness response involved because we spend a lot of time talking about how to have a christian marriage how to have christian finances how to keep a sexual ethic how to treat our co-workers how to be a good boss talk about all these consequences of the gospel and part of the problem is that sometimes those consequences are seen as the gospel itself as we talked about last week but i think you listener will know that feeling right of you know we talk a lot about how it's just my faith in god that's for, required for salvation but we spend a lot, and I'm all for all those things I just listed, by the way. All for them. But then why are we so obsessed with our actions if it, they don't have any consequence on our salvation? And I'm not trying to be like facetious. I genuinely want to know like, why, as a group, for lack of a better term, or as a 
tradition better have we we'll get into this later a little bit with your paper um but why have we made in our proclamation of what the gospel is the news being that to quote paul it is not of works that any man should boast but a free gift of god But yet we are so obsessed with our moral actions. And again, I think we should be worried about our moral actions. I'm not saying we take them lightly. All I'm saying is I think Dr. Bates is right. We've divorced them, but I would also say then we are weirdly obsessed with them for saying that we don't think that they're necessary. Well, and the way that I've heard a lot of people who were deeply steeped in this realm of theology, um, a lot of the ways that I've heard them express um, their answer to that critique is that the works are the fruit of genuine faith. And you can't tell that you have genuine, you can tell you have genuine faith because of your works, but your works don't necessarily constitute genuine faith because you can have works without having genuine faith. And that is so you want to have in part true. Well, but what I think is interesting is there. So you can go. I'll. But can you? I mean, in in your response you just gave, like, yeah, you know, trying to embody that thought, which that's even an interesting phrase in and of itself. Um, you can have faith without. What is would you say you can have faith without having works? Works, but they'll they'll say that true faith ha- bears the fruit of works. I would agree. But then it's almost like okay, you've just kicked the ball down the field a little bit because you still have to deal with if you don't have works then it's not true faith. So then you still have to have works in order for your faith to be genuine. And so it, it seems to me as though it's just going in circles. That's my, one of my objections. The other objection what is... What is a woman? It's someone who identifies as a woman. Yeah. What is someone who has faith? It's someone who acts like they have faith. Yeah. Well, what if... Is the action necessary for the faith? Well, yeah, but no. Yeah. I, to me, I, my question is genuinely, but can you? Can you actually have like true faith without the actions that would represent that faith? I would say no, because that proves that you actually don't believe. I would say no you as well. You actually don't trust. Yeah. Now, now, the question becomes, because we all, as you just explained, you have moments where you're like, I am like pulling my hair out because it is hard for me to trust that things are going to turn out well in this situation or in this specific arena, right? I've myself included a lot of friends who are in situations like this. doesn't mean you don't act 
doesn't mean that there's not hesitancy, doesn't mean that there's not doubt, doesn't mean that there's not heartache, doesn't mean you're not saved. This is part of the trouble. Because should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. Who can? How can those who are dead to sin still live as a slave? So, but what I was going to get at is just because we have doubt, just because we have places where we might be incongruent and where we'd say, I would espouse this belief, but might act or have, you know, the inclinations to do other things. Um, I, my response to myself in those areas and situations is, well, then I need to reorient my faith so that my actions align because I actually, you then, I would say that I actually don't believe that thing that I would say I believe if I'm acting contradictory. And that's a question. With this whole thing about news, event, something that has happened because of which the world is different. Do you actually believe that? Oh, yeah, I trust Jesus Christ as my savior. He's forgiven my, like, Awesome. Do you think that because of Jesus, the world is a different place? Do you? How do you act? Are you scared and grabbing for certainty in other ways? Are you worried that the state of affairs uh, turning one way or another is going to uh, ruin Christendom or your function as a Christian? And there's many things to be scared of and worried about. I'm not demeaning that at all. But this is a question, as I'm like driving around, as I'm meditating on these things we talk about, I I continually in the past weeks have asked myself, do I really believe? And this is a scary question. Like this is like genuinely something that I've been asking myself for weeks. And I've been a Christian since I was been a Christian, accepted Jesus since I was like five. <laughs> do I really believe that because of the resurrection, the world is a different place and Jesus is actually in charge. Or do I just say that and then act contrary for the rest of my life? Well, then do I really believe it? So another example of that, and they actually bring this up and I disagree with them on this point. And which is one of the reasons why I wanted to highlight it <clears throat> towards the end of my paper. And we probably won't read this section. So I'll just say it now because I think it actually applies really well to this conversation. Um, 
I talk about how if you're married, your faithfulness is not just an intellectual assent to certain propositions. Your faithfulness in that marriage is every single day you show up to love that person as they need to be loved, regardless of whether or not they specifically like that manifestation of love in that moment, right? Sometimes that's correct of love. Sometimes it's joyous, happy butterflies and rainbows. It also excludes you from actions that would break that faithfulness, right? And so there are things you don't do in order to remain faithful. And there are things that you should do in order to remain faithful. And so I think marriage being a husband or wife, being the bride of Christ is actually a really good image for this idea of faithfulness. Because I think that's what we mean. That's just, it's what's going on. And I don't think there's a way around it. And I think all of the attempts to work our way around it ultimately lead to shallow, intellectualized faith. So um, unless you have any further comments on that, I'll pull up the first part of my paper and we'll start walking through that. As always, thank you guys very much for listening. Next week, Daniel and I are going to continue this discussion on justification, so you can look forward to that. In the meantime, if you are watching this on YouTube and you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. The button's right down there. If you want to leave us a comment, let us know what you thought of the episode, something you found interesting, something you maybe disagreed with or uh, have a, a slightly different take on, then let us know there. If you want to email me, you can email me at belfastpodcast.gmail.com. You can get us get in touch with us through Instagram at the Belfast Podcast. You can DM Daniel there. As always, at least for now, the link to the GoFundMe is right there in the description. So if you would love to give to my trip to England, then I would very much appreciate anything you want to give. Anything over $5 is going to give you access to special content I'm going to create as a consequence of the trip. So that is down below as well. Again, thank you guys very much for listening. I hope that this is enlightening and encouraging and has been challenging. And we'll see you in the next one.